when we talk about being a believer, all of us would like to model after the life of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, Yeshua. And similarly, we would want what we call church to be after what he desires for it to be, after what he perhaps even modeled his life out to be and how the early church conducted church. What is church according to the scriptures? And what is church according to our modern definition? And does these two definitions line up? Do they mean the same thing or have there been a divide? Have things changed over the last 2000 years? And if it did, has it changed for the better or the worse? Perhaps the only way for us to really find out is by going to the scriptures, seeing what the Messiah modeled out and by us even going into you know, the book of Acts and even a step further, perhaps going even into the historical writings that we have about what the early church looked like. When we look at all these things and we investigate where we are, perhaps in this way, we can repair anything that needs to be repaired or not if there's nothing to repair. I want to submit to you that a lot has happened over the last 2000 years. Some good things and some not so good things. I think we can all agree that we all want to be like him more and more. So in this video, we're going to investigate what is church look like? What even is church according to the Bible? What makes a healthy congregation? What did the 2020 COVID-19 pandemic teach us about modern church? And we're going to talk about leadership and more. Now, when we think about that word church, some of us immediately, in fact, most people would likely say they think about a beautiful building that is decorated with angels and have stained glass windows and maybe a pulpit. 
and uh, rows of seating and, you know, something of that sort. Other people would simply think about an organization, right? They would think about something like the Roman Catholic Church, which is today an organization stretching worldwide. Other people, when they think about church, they only think about a bad experience. They may even think about hypocrisy or whatever it is that they encountered with this thing that they think about as church. Some of us love the word and concept of church and some of us don't because we may have been hurt by people within that thing called church or we think that there are things happening associated with this word church that aren't biblical at all. Many people have done things in the name of Jesus contrary to the word and many people have done things with this thing we call church that is not what the scriptures describe us to do with it. Ultimately, what we want to do as believers is, look, many people have their ways and their thoughts and their sayings and their ideas and and, and, and all of us have experiences, good and bad. But what we really need to do to get to truth is we need to push that all aside just for a moment. And then we need to look at what did the Messiah say? What did he model out? Then we can discover what the word church really means. Where does truth come from for you? Is it from your denomination? How you grew up in your family? With, with what you call your religion? Is that the source of truth? In other words, it's really tradition. Or is your source of truth not just what was passed down, which can be good or can be a lie, but rather what is said by the Messiah? That's what we want to do, because traditions, they're not always bad. They're not always evil. They can be good if they line up with the word of God. But as we see how Jesus handled some of the bad traditions, for example, of the Pharisees, we can discover and know that, well, some traditions are actually harmful when they come in the way of what the Bible actually says truth is and what we have to think about a concept like church. So what did Jesus say about church? He said the following. Matthew 16, verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So Jesus here uses this word church, which is ecclesia in the Greek. And maybe surprising to you to know that that word doesn't actually mean building or even organization, or denomination, or any such thing. It simply means a calling out, to be called out. It may remind you of another thing that Jesus said. He said in John 15 verse 19, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, 
but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So Jesus tells his disciples that he called them out of the world. And really, this is saying, I want you to be a light to the world, which he also said. So what does this mean? Because this is what the word church means. What does it really mean to be called out of the world? Does it mean that we go and live on a farm in a very rural area? Is that what Jesus is commanding all his disciples to do? Or is there something else? I want to submit to you that, no, it's not about moving out on a homestead or on a farm, which there's nothing wrong with that. But this is not what he is commanding. He is rather simply saying, I want you to look different, to be called out, to be set apart, to be holy. Actually, a concept that's not new, but that God has always wanted from his people. In fact, he often called prophets like Jonah to the sinful cities. He called them to preach repentance. And Jesus and his disciples, when they were in the city, they were preaching repentance. They did not. Jesus didn't come on earth just to remove himself from the cities. He was in their midst often. But there were other times in the scriptures, like with Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah, where God did call his people out of a city that he was about to judge. So we can be called out at a certain point in time. But this command of Jesus to be out of the world is not him saying, get out of all the cities, get out of the world in that way. He is simply saying, I want you to be a light in the midst of the world. So this is what church means in its essence, to be called out, to look different, to be set apart. Have you ever been asked the classic question of what church are you from? I don't know about you, but, you know, when I've spoken to people before, especially strangers and I'm talking to them about God, they so often are quick to ask, what church are you from? And what they're really asking is what place do you go to? And more specifically, what they really want to know is what denomination are you from? What framework are you from? Where, what do you really believe is what they're trying to get at. They're trying to, people like to put other people in a box to categorize their beliefs. And so what did Jesus say about this? Because the disciples actually tried to do the same thing, but Jesus corrected them. The disciples in Luke 9 verse 49, we see John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. This other man was doing good things in the name of Jesus, but yet the disciples didn't like him and what he was doing because he simply was a stranger. They did not know who he was, and so they didn't trust him. 
So they put him in a sort of a box. But Jesus corrected them, saying that they should not stand in his way. Do not exclude someone or throw someone aside just because you do not know who they are or because they may even seem a little strange and different. See, new denominations are often formed for this very reason. People like to focus on certain things and their faith and their beliefs. And other people, they like to focus on other things. Some people, they really, really love things like casting out demons. Like this gentleman that these disciples encountered. Other people are all about studying the word. Both of these things are good. And they're both worthy of putting, pl putting plenty of focus on. Because it's both things that the Messiah did. However, we as people would like to sometimes discount others who aren't as focused on the same things we are. Even if we are of the same faith and even if there are no deal breakers in our disagreements in faith. Even if both of us are saved and, and really on the same teams. We are supposed to work together. We're supposed to be in unity. Now, there certainly are doctrines worth splitting over deal breakers, like I mentioned. However, a certain denomination that formed over disagreements such as hairstyles or dress codes or, you know, what song we play at worship or 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 whatever else. Things that aren't important in terms of the faith that aren't deal breakers. You know, oftentimes we form whole denominations and groups over things like that. And the consequence is often that we don't learn from each other anymore. Because when we are in a box, in a, you know, when we are inwardly focused and we, we never have an, lend an ear to hear the perspectives of others who are believers, but who may be a little strange and weird and different. We don't like the way they, they, they listen to music or, or, or whatever it is. We cut ourselves off. And this is one of the most disastrous things that have occurred within the body of Christ. The reason I say this is because you will realize often that many denominations have wonderful truths that are that they have. And there are other denominations that have wonderful truths that they have. And if they could only learn from each other and have the humility to do so, they would both be much better off for it. And so similarly, this has happened in a great way with regards to the spirit and the truth which we are supposed to worship God with. Yeshua told the Samaritan women, I am looking for worshipers of spirit and truth. Some groups are very focused on the Holy Spirit and you know, walking in that and it's wonderful and beautiful, just like the Messiah did. And there are other groups who are all about walking in the truth and walking in holiness. And it's wonderful, just like the Messiah did. But so often these groups don't want to listen to what the other have to say. 
Because often those who are so focused on the truth and the knowledge and the learning struggle with the doing aspect of it. Sometimes they struggle with the healing of the sick and believing God for miracles and actually seeing miracles in their life. And we have people who then on the other side love the miracles and they see some miracles, but their truth is a their their theology and their doctrine can can be refined. But because we have pride, because that's that's just let's just be honest here, because of our pride, we don't see what we're missing. Because we think they're a little strange, just like the disciples thought that that guy who's trying to cause out demons who we don't know. He's a little strange. We don't want nothing to do with him. Maybe we should even try and stop him is what went through their mind. And so we have people today who struggle with things of the truth. They have forgotten some of his commandments, like the Sabbath. They have exchanged the biblical feast days for feasts that aren't in the Bible. They may even struggle simply in their relationship with God because of this lack of truth about who God is. Other people struggle walking in the spirit. They have never casted out a demon. They have never healed a sick person. They have never seen God do miraculous things through their life in that way. They have never baptized anyone in their own bathtub before. You know, some of these things may sound so weird to you listening to me saying it out loud. But these things, believe it or not, were very part of the lives of the disciples and even the early church. And they ought to be part of our life, too. But it's going to take some humility. It's going to take us needing to become humble and say, you know what? I have some things right, but there's a lot of things that I don't see, understand and and I want in my life. That's really where a lot of this starts. And what we call church, if we correctly do what we call church, these things can be more quickly taught and walked out in the lives of people who go to church. Have you ever wondered why you can go to a church, a typical modern day mainstream church service for 20 years, for 30 years and grow so little spiritually? That's what is happening with so many believers today, because there are some things wrong with what we think of when we say church. And we're going to address them in this video. Don't get me wrong, our church customs and what we think of when we say church, they're not all wrong. They're not all evil. Of course not. Like I said in the beginning, tradition isn't always evil. But what I do want to say is that many of the things that we think of when we say church and the formats, many of those things weren't around in the first century at all. And so that's I'm only saying this to say that these things All our customs aren't necessary to have the kind of revival we desire. Sometimes the answer to what we're looking for is in plain sight and so simple that we wouldn't even believe it if we saw it, even though it's clearly modeled by our Messiah. 
You see what I'm talking about here? If, if we just look at the life of our Messiah, we would get it all right there. We see, for example, that he had his 12 disciples. That was one of the most important parts of his ministry. He had an active discipleship model. He was walking with a small group of people around him who he was actively teaching to carry forth. He was growing them from basically being spiritual babies to spiritually mature and even becoming the leaders of the early church. So we see that discipleship aspect, which was very important to the Messiah. We see then that he and his disciples were in private, more secluded places and gatherings and things of the like. They were talking about this gospel of the kingdom everywhere they went. It wasn't just when they went to synagogue. So we see that there was this aspect of a home church or a mobile church or an informal church, if you will, a a, a church that was not like the synagogue of the day or the modern day church buildings of today. But church for them was being called out, being different. When they were a few together, they would start talking and worshiping, etc. That was church. And then, of course, we also had the Messiah go to these public gatherings of believers, which in the first century was the synagogue. And the synagogue was the central place of public worship. The Torah, the scriptures was being read from the synagogues because they did not have Bibles yet. Like, you know, people didn't have their own personal Bible. So we see that there was all these different elements uh, to do in his ministry. But what is perhaps most interesting is that no matter where they went, there were certain things that were always happening. There was always truth being taught. There was always workings of the spirit following his life. That was every, everywhere he went, no matter where, that was what was happening. He was in the synagogue. He was uh, reading from the Torah scroll of, and the book of Isaiah. And there was another time he was in the synagogue and he healed a layman before everyone. And then, of course, he was in other places, too, of his disciples healing people. You see, my point is that there was a very clear focus on this intimate kind of relationship, this personal touch that Yeshua had. And this carried over extremely strongly into the early church. They copied it exactly. Let me show you what I mean. When we read the book of Acts, we get a clear picture of what the early church looked like. And we read in Acts 2 verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Acts 5 verse 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, They did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Acts 20 verse 20. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Acts 
1 Corinthians 16 verse 19. The Church of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. Romans 16 verse 5. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Ephianidas, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. We see that throughout the book of Acts, the book of Corinthians and Romans and many other places in the New Testament, that there was this thing where it always says they were both in the church of the home, the house churches, and in the public or the synagogue. When they say public uh, meeting, that is referring always to the synagogue meeting, because that's what the big meetings, the corporate meetings of the day were were looking like. Okay, so it's interesting because not once do we really read about just uh, uh, synagogue meetings. It's, It's like the authors are trying to really show us that home meetings were such a big part of this all. You see, brothers and sisters, it's interesting because this these home meetings, which were happening so frequently in parallel to the public synagogue meetings, were occurring at a time where the persecution was not that great yet. Because at this point in the book of Acts, yes, there is always forms of persecution. But at this point, they are still able to fellowship within the synagogue. They're still allowed to be in these public meetings. So they're not persecuted to the point where they can't even do that. Yet, even though they can still go to these public synagogue, larger meetings, they are still making great effort to meet in private. This is very interesting because in today's world, we often, you know, depending on the church, of course, but most churches in this world do not have this kind of model. They do not have the home meeting and this whole church fellowship. People would probably think, why would I go to a home meeting if I go to church on a Sunday? Right. But that's not how they thought in the first century, because they were hungry and because they also understood the ministry of the Messiah. They understood that his ministry was not just about getting in front of big crowds, but also getting in front of individuals. You see, our God is a God who can hold the whole world in his hand. And in his other hand, he can hold your heart. That's who he is. He knows your heart intimately. He cares for it. And he also holds the whole world in his hand. And that's who the Messiah was. And that's who we ought to be. What does it help for us to get in front of big crowds and have the whole world in front of us as a, a big crowd public audience, like similar to the synagogues in the first century, similar to we what we have in many of the big churches today There's nothing wrong with that. Wonderful. Let the gospel go forth. Let it be preached. But to to make that an exclusive thing at the cost of the individual meeting and the individual attention, the thing we call discipleship, that there's something wrong with that picture. 
And that's where we are today. But why? What happened? Why did things change so much? Why is church thought of as a building instead of a movement now? Why is private, personal, one-on-one discipleship training, walking with someone on a road, why has that been replaced with big stages and pulpits and rows of seats? Why has it been replaced? Well, in history, we can clearly see why. I want to read to you a historian called Sozomen. He wrote in around 400 to 450 AD. And he wrote about what happened that caused the home church, as we had it in the first century, to die out almost overnight. He wrote, the emperor, however, enacted a law that their own houses of prayer should be abolished and that they should meet in the churches and not hold church in private houses or in public spaces. He deemed it better to hold fellowship in the Catholic Church and he advised them to assemble in her walls. After this, the law was passed. They could not assemble in public because it was forbidden, nor could they hold their assemblies in secret, for they were watched by the bishops and clergy of their city. Hence, the greater number of these sectarians were led by fear of consequences to join themselves to the Catholic Church. And those who adhered to their original sentiments did not, at their death, leave any disciples to propagate their heresy. For they could neither come together into the same place, nor were they able to teach in security those of the same opinions. This all may seem shocking, but this is what happened. Sozomen wrote that the Catholic Church basically outlawed, meeting in homes, talking, having a church in one's house. This thing that was so prevalent throughout the book of Acts and the early church, that was almost overnight outlawed. They did this because they felt like anyone outside the Catholic Church at the time were heretics and had no right to assemble in their religious gatherings. Of course, there were heretics outside the Catholic Church, but there were also people who weren't. And so now this forced everyone to come into the Catholic Church buildings. And these buildings were modeled after the desires of the Emperor Constantine. Some of the things that were put up and used were things like a structure that is very structured and rigid. Similar to today's services within the Catholic Church and even bleeding into some reform denominations, some of the services are extremely rigid and formal and structured. There's nothing wrong with structure and of itself. There's nothing wrong with having respect for God and all of these things. However, sometimes this rigid experience comes in the way of the Holy Spirit's movings. You see, when we look at the synagogue, the public meeting space in the first century, it would not have been weird in the middle of someone's sermon for someone to put up their hand and ask a question 
or to make a statement. It, this kind of debate structure was welcomed. They weren't opposed to having conversations about the scripture because they all wanted to learn and answer questions. Because again, not everyone had an own, their own copy of the Bible. However, in the Catholic Church, around 400 to 450 AD, when this all started happening, this open conversation structure was done away with. A pulpit was set up and this pulpit brings about this separation between the preacher and the people. And brothers and sisters, let me be clear. I mean, there, I don't have anything against a pulpit in of itself. However, sometimes the traditional pulpit and, and the distance that the pulpit has from the audience and, and this separation, it brings about this disconnect where people don't feel as active participants within the church service. Rather, they are passive participants. In other words, people started having this mentality that church is the place we go to to listen to the word of God. Instead of church is the place we go to to fellowship with other believers, to speak about the scriptures, to participate actively by having open conversations, as well as even practicing our spiritual gifts like prophecy, speaking in tongues, the gift of healing, etc. So we see that this rigid structured service now did not have any more space and room for the natural flowings of the Holy Spirit, the and the active participation of the participants. Furthermore, often when we can walk into these amazing church buildings that are so old, right? It's they're just awesome. They're just massive and the decorations and everything is just beautiful. And often people have this association that when they walk into this beautiful building with the stained glass windows, they're like, wow, look how amazing this is. And they and they see this as an experience God through this building. But sometimes it's not that they feel or experience God. It's simply that they feel or experience the building. But this is not what we go to church for. But unfortunately, many times people have gone to church because it's a, the building plays a massive role in it. And so it's inconceivable for many of many people to think of having church in something as simple as a home. How can God be in a massive church that is beautifully engraved and everything? How can God be in that church in the same way he is in your small living room? But yet, that's the truth. That's who he is. If we think that he is only going to be in a big building, that's pretty. We are severely limiting God. And I want to submit to you, we won't even see God move the way that he wants to, because we limit him. We say, God, you only can work under these circumstances, even though I want to submit to you. I have I have personally let me just say something personal. I have seen God move more powerfully in home church settings than big church, public church settings. 
I have seen amazing things in both settings, but I have seen God move more powerfully in home settings. God can move in both. My point is simply by saying this, not to take away from either, but simply to state that the large building or the small living room has no impact on how God moves or how powerfully he moves. These laws that the Catholic Church brought in was put into, quote unquote, strike terror into the hearts of the peoples. The Catholic Church did this by force, persecuting people who met in homes. And I want to submit to you that this is the reason why the Catholic Church today is as pervasive and large as it is. They have taken a lot by force and done things through oppressions. So what is the home church all about? Why was it so popular in the early church? And why should we consider even having it around today when we have our church buildings? Well, one of the reasons is that home fellowships promote spiritual family. What is the wording? They say there is no place like home, right? Because, well, one of the reasons is because that's where our family live. They're with us where we feel close to them when we're in our homes. That's where we in interact with them when we go home from busy day at work or from school or whatever. Now, if the Messiah came to say that you will lose mother, father, brother, sister along the way, if you want to follow me, you know, he's he's saying you will lose your physical, some of physical family members. I mean, it may happen at least. Now, if that is the case, would the father not want us to have, if we lose someone along the way, to have someone come and stand in the gap, have a spiritual family member come and be someone we can also depend on instead of the physical family we may have lost? You see, the home is a place where our spiritual family is supposed to be welcome. People who are brothers and sisters in the Messiah should be welcomed into our homes. They should. This is where we can cultivate great and close relationships where we can learn how to love them the way that Christ told us to love them, because he said the world will know you by the love that you have for one another. But if you just go to a large public gathering and you have so little interaction, I mean, you go to this building, you go and sit down in the pew, you listen an hour to the sermon and you may worship for another half hour and then you may have a drink of coffee and and then you go home, right? This is completely different. I mean, there's nothing in of itself, you know, evil about that. Don't get me wrong. But in contrast to a home fellowship, we see that there is now you come in and you go and you participate in the talk about the word. Everyone can can add and ask a question and speak and say and 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 oftentimes different people can even, you know, um, have a little teaching that they give of what they've learned, etc. So there's this 
There's this closeness. There's also, for example, things like praying for one another, like one on one things that is sometimes not possible when you have a massive public church gathering. Knowing the person intimately, what their issues are, etc. Do you understand where I'm getting at? In a home, you're sitting there with a cup of coffee and drinking while, while, while fellowshipping. It's different from the rigid, structured services that we sometimes have in our big public gatherings. A second reason why home churches are wonderful is discipleship. This is like we discussed was such a large part of Yeshua's ministry. He had a personal one on one relationship with his disciples who he supported and trained up in the faith. I remember when I was uh, younger, right, when I was going to school and you know, my brother and sister, they were going to school. My, my parents were looking for a school for us that had small classrooms, because if you have a smaller classroom, the kids get more attention. And that's why if you could do it, homeschooling is even more wonderful because there is one on one attention. Everyone knows that this is more profitable. And how much more in the faith? Yeshua, God knew this and that's why he did it. It was part of the foundation of his ministry was to have a small gathering where he personally knew the people he was with and trained them up and spoken to their lives. And those disciples had their disciples and their disciples had their disciples and their disciples had their disciples. And if every person has disciples, the world gets changed because now it's not just about a passive participation in a church service. It's people get growth at an unprecedented level that is so much more powerful. And going back to what we talked about in the beginning of this teaching, spirit and truth, that which has often been lost in parts of the body will only be able to be fully restored the way that God desires for it through a model that includes home church or smaller fellowship gatherings. It's the only way it will never be accomplished through merely having large gatherings. The reason I say this is because it's in the scriptures. The disciples were taught how to walk in spirit and truth by the Messiah himself, a one on one relationship. Furthermore, if we read in regards to teaching the word, for example, in Acts 8 verse 30, so Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. So Philip saw the eunuch trying to read the scroll of Isaiah and he did not understand it. And this the man said, how will I understand it unless someone guides me. You see, there were synagogues to go to and there is profit in going to a gathering that is larger in public, right? That, that there's always profit in that. I'm not speaking against that here. However, he said something profound. How can I understand 
unless a person, someone guides me, unless someone disciples me, helps me understand my, my questions. And soon after that man got baptized right there by Philip on the side of the road. What hinders me from getting baptized? So we see that the truth is most effectively taught through discipleship. Furthermore, discipleship, that one on one personal relationship brings forth accountability. So that means that over time, there's someone who is going to keep you accountable to do what you set out to do. Furthermore, there's someone who can help you and your relationship with God when you stumble or fall or struggle in some other form or fashion. Okay, so that's how, for example, in the truth, we can grow through discipleship and in the spirit. It's just as powerful because now if you are a disciple maker and you are doing this, you are able to start baptizing people like Philip did that act of letting the spirit come upon someone or you in your home, in the home church setting or in a smaller private setting, you are able to go and actually use and train in your spiritual giftings. You can pray for the sick and see them recover. So now it's no longer just a pastor up there or someone who's visiting the church is doing it. But because there are small gatherings, there's less pressure. You know, everyone there and there's a comfort, a, a, a safe place and space where spiritual gifts can be used. Words of knowledge can be given. Prophecy can be delivered. In fact, my personal one of my personal big things that the Lord did with me was he gave me a prophecy over my life. And that was done over from a lady in a home church setting who, who didn't know me, but who, who the Lord spoke through. Right. There's so much that can be done in terms of spiritual growth and spiritual gifts that is hard to achieve. In a setting that is much more larger and public when you have a lot of people at a big gathering like the synagogues had in the first century or many of our modern churches. This is also going to be training people to be these active participants, and they will be able then to when they go home and go to their workplaces, they'll be able to be good witnesses to bring unbelievers and other people to the faith because they grew so much in that home fellowship. See, it is by active participation, real doing on our part that allows us to grow as fast as possible. And that's what Yeshua knew. And that's what he why he did it with his disciples. He didn't just sit them down and teach them things he did that, but he also actually took them and let them do things with him. So there was this participation. So, brothers and sisters, you know, just as a little background and testimony from my side, I've been involved throughout my life. The Lord has taken me perhaps with reason through as through various different church structures. I I was I've been part of reformed structured, very rigid kind of 
church churches before i've been involved in a small bible study groups of 10 people i've been involved in even smaller groups of five or less i've been involved in other more non-denominational modern church services that are public and larger right i've been involved in a lot of it i have seen it the lord has taken me through it all And when I look back on these experiences and I look at where I was growing the most, it was when I was part of a small group. It was when I was part of a home church or a place where there was actual um, place for me to grow, room to grow. And this is not to speak again. Let me make it very clear. What I am talking about here is not speaking down and in the least upon public larger gatherings because there's great profit in it. And we're going to speak about that in a minute. But I am putting an exclamation mark next to the importance of what the early church did. Meeting in home churches as well as in public places. And so the home church, the personal interaction, the one on one, the participation in all the ways that we've discussed and more was paramount, paramount to my growth. I would not be let me be honest, let me be clear. I would not be who I am in my faith today if I simply all through my years was in a public, large church gathering and came every Sunday. I could do that for 40 years. I would not be where I am today. Just being honest, because that's not the biblical model. That's not what the disciple that what Yeshua did. Jesus did not come. And when he in his ministry, he didn't set up a big building, put rows up, put a pulpit up and preach from it every Sunday. That's not what he did. He went to the people. He preached to the people. He went to homes. He preached to homes. He went anywhere and preached anywhere. And he also went to the public synagogue and even there. But my point is simply that he had a vision for reaching crowds and vision for reaching individual hearts. And if we do not have the vision for reaching individual hearts, we will not reach those hearts. We will reach a crowd. They will hear the big message of the gospel. Glory to God important they they will be all this but they but the personal attention that they need to actually grow the way they should will not be there and so this is why i'm talking about this and why this is so important today because this will mean that we could actually become the bride that yeshua is coming back for a bride equally yoked a bride after his image an image uh, a man who was a disciple maker before he was a pastor. However, while being in these different kinds of fellowships, I also learned something that just because you're in a home church format or in a big public church kind of format, the format in of itself does not mean that your church, your calling out is going to be healthy. I, in fact, have been part of ones that fell apart. I have seen it. I have seen why. 
And I've also been part of ones that didn't, that were healthy, so healthy that before my eyes, I truly for the first time understood what Yeshua meant when he said that you need to love one another as I loved you. He said in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. You see, the key to a healthy fellowship can hinge on a few things. But some of the most important ones is simply that you know the people within the fellowship, that you know the needs, the struggles of others. There has to be another in other um, words, a a time when there is actual discussion about the lives of others and what they're going through to support them, to pray for them. Oh, and by the way, when I say pray for them, I am not talking about having a just a, a prayer at the end, you know, help Tommy and help Bobby and that's it. No, I'm talking about individual members going to other individuals in the in the group and actually praying one on one, having a set time, a, a time set apart where people are actually praying for one another. And, you know, for a lot of people in the beginning, that's really uncomfortable. I get that. But if that's not there, you will never develop the love that you will have to get for your brothers and sisters. The way that we get the love we need for them is by going out there and pouring out that love. And then God pours in more love into us and we pour up more love. And then God pours more love into us and we pour out that love. Like that's how it works. And it's your, if you feel uncomfortable, bonus, because that probably means you're doing it right. So there's that one-on-one -on -one prayer and knowing the needs of others that's very important. Furthermore, there's also worshiping God together. You need to be studying the word together. You need to be praying together. You need to be worshiping the Lord all together. And one more thing I'll say very importantly, is that we also pray for others who are outside the fellowship or the congregation. You see what happens in can, this can happen in a larger church and also in a home group or a home church is that we get very inwardly focused. Everything is about ourselves. It's about our home group. It's about people inside and it's, we should care for that. But it becomes so inwardly focused, we lose sight of the outside world. And so what breaks this for the good is if we force ourselves to be ministers outside the walls too, to go out with our brothers and sisters two by two, and we go and we pray for strangers, other people outside. Now we are actually developing love and consideration for the people outside and that prevents things like gossiping about people outside or or thinking bad about people outside, not loving people outside, etc. Incredibly important. I mean, talking about all this, I don't know about you, but it sounds so wonderful. Like it makes you think why that this some of this fall away. Why 
did the Catholic Church do what it did way back in 400 AD? Well, you see, the Catholic Church wanted control. They wanted an unhealthy kind of control. You see, this is a hard thing because there is a balance to be gained here. Home churches and fellowships, and I, and I think this is something not talked about often enough by those who promote it. They sometimes suffer because of lack of leadership and because of lack of accountability. Home groups need good leadership and they need a leadership that is held accountable. In other words, you see, the thing is, a lot of church pastors are opposed to the idea of home groups because they feel like a home church is outside of their control. They feel like, you know, they don't know what's going on there. But see, if we focus on discipleship the way we ought to, we would be so focused on raising leaders that we would be able to raise leaders who we can really trust with our own lives, who we would trust to be able to put over home churches and when they then come together, we are not going to be worried about what goes on there because we trust these individuals. You see, but there is an accountability structure and a leadership structure that is necessary. We know that even in home groups, just as in larger public gatherings, issues can come up. There can be heresies brought in. There can be anti-missionaries who come in or whatever else. And these things need to be addressed by a leader who was appointed by the people in whom they trust. So we need to raise these leaders whom we trust. But then there's also a degree of control that we sometimes have, like which the Catholic Church had, I want to submit to you, which was an unhealthy kind of control. And this was about not trusting in the Holy Spirit. It was about they wanted to control everything that everyone hears at all times. They don't want anyone in any home group talking or hearing anything that is not coming from the official pulpit of the Catholic Church. That's what they wanted. And so that's not healthy. That's dangerous. That's not trusting in the Holy Spirit. And that's that's stealing from the congregants because they won't be able to grow the way they would have. So we must trust that the Holy Spirit is going to guide other leaders who may be below in hierarchy, a main pastor, and that they will be trustworthy in all that they do. And then we can address issues as they come up. If we as believers continue to abandon the idea of a house church, we will continue to suffer some of the consequences with the sense of spiritual family that's lost or the set structures instead of the spirit led structures or the impersonal kind of uh, relationships instead of the intimate relationships of home churches. Or even about how the ministerial duty of the leaders which they receive become so overwhelming because no one else is picking up their responsibility. This happens in the kind of church settings where people just come to 
passively receive instead of actually be forced to participate. You see, it's much easier to force people to participate in a home church setting than versus a large public setting where people typically just come to listen. And so with that now, all people are equipped to baptize. All people are equipped, become equipped to do other duties and help the actual head pastor to do what he is supposed to do, such as exercising spiritual gifts, discipleship. You see, so often we've told you don't need to do anything. You just need to listen. That's what the Catholic Church brought in with what when they outlawed house churches. But Yeshua didn't say that. He didn't say you don't need to do anything. You only need to listen. He said, you want to follow me? Pick up your cross. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a lot to do. That sounds like something that needs to be given up. I mean, it sounds like there's actually action involved in following him. It's not just about going to church on a Sunday and listening. Large church meetings, if you will, are very important as well. And so I do not wish for you to think that I am discounting them. They are important because they make people realize that they're part of a greater community. It also facilitates corporate worship, worshiping with a large group of believers, something we even read will happen in the book of Revelation. It also facilitates corporate direction. That is when all the house churches come together in a large public gathering, there is direction that can be given and there can be edification given as a whole to the greater public. And there was corporate fellowship. But no matter you know, how big these synagogues in the first century grew, this never did away with the house churches. They continued to meet, even if those synagogues were big. You see, what's interesting when we look at the COVID-19 pandemic is that the world was being shaken, right? And the church, the, the public large gathering places where everyone met on the Sunday got shut down, depending on your country and state. And what happened? I mean, we just saw so many of these church structures just started falling apart. People were freaking out, to say the least, because there was no backup plan. It was like they were caught off guard. And you know what's really interesting is that I believe that the COVID-19 pandemic that has hit the world is like a testing ground, a precursor, a a prototype, if you will, to the coming, most certain coming persecution that the Western church, as well as the rest of the world's believers, will only face more and more as the time goes on. You see, brothers and sisters, things are going to get worse as the time goes on. That's what the Bible teaches. And so the question is not if, but when it does, will we be prepared? Because the early church was in constant persecution and also growing persecution. But even through the persecution, it stood strong and survived. How was it able to do that? It was because the model of the early church was correct from the beginning. Today, the model is missing. 
an element. See, the early church was meeting in homes. So when they were not allowed to meet in the synagogue anymore, it was bad, but they could go on because the leadership structures were already set up. People were already used to living, in, uh, going to fellowship in homes as well. And people were, they were doing this already. So when they were forced more into that, that was not that big of a deal. Today, we have none of that in many churches. And so when this stuff happens, leaders are losing it because they have no idea what to do. But if we simply read the Bible, it tells us what to do. Meet in home churches. Meet in smaller private gatherings. Institute discipleship more and more and raise real leaders. When we look at the church in China, which is heavily persecuted at the moment, we call it the underground church. The church is not literally these massive underground churches. It's more typically small home group gatherings. That's what it looks like. It simply is that they've gone back to what the early church looked like because they had to. They had no other choice. They can't go to a big public gathering because they're persecuted for it by their own state governments. So I want to submit to you that God is blowing the shofar here. That God is saying... I am preparing you. I showed the junk that you have, the lack of obedience to the word, because that's simply what this is. Brothers and sisters, I know this is, this is just like when we look at what is church, according to the Bible, every single time it is referencing how they met in the home and how they met in the synagogue, like we read all through the book of Acts. So, and we see that there was discipleship. So if discipleship is absent, if and that typically is best practiced with small gatherings, we are not following the call of the Messiah to make disciples. So that's the first problem. So when we're not making disciples, we're just putting on a large, may I dare call it a show, and there's no participation of, of the congregants, none of that. It's all going to fall apart when persecution comes because these people are used to not doing anything. They're used to only coming to listen. They're used to only, uh, you know, they're being there, sitting in it for an hour in the pew and then going home. So when persecution comes, they're going to fall away, many of them, because they weren't strong enough. They weren't equipped. They're not used to what they suddenly now need to awaken to, and that is to be the church and not just listen as a church. So, sisters, pastors, if you are listening to this, consider implementing some of the things I've been talking about. Consider allowing, continue the public, large church gatherings. Please do. It's beautiful. It's valuable. But also consider setting up a structure of leadership and accountability for smaller home groups to do and, and to meet. And how you do that is up to you. Some people meet, you know, three times a month in, a, in their home churches. And once a month, they do the big gathering where everyone comes together. How you decide is up to you. But start doing it is all I say. Start doing it. Because now we're going to be able to see the fruit then that the Messiah saw. 
That's how he did it. We're going to start seeing the spirit move in greater ways because our people are being equipped to do it. We're going to start seeing the truth go forth in greater ways because we are now one-on-one -on -one teaching and we have greater relationship with our people. We know who they are. We know their struggles on a more personal level. And they're all working now together. It's not just all on the pasture to be burdened with all the heavy duties of a minister because everyone is pulling their weight. And what I also want to say in the end of this section is that if you're a congregant, if you're someone who goes to a fellowship, if there is persecution, if there is like with this thing of COVID-19, right? It's not direct state persecution, but it prohibits people from meeting the same way they used to. You have a responsibility to continue meeting in whichever way you can. You have a responsibility to continue supporting the ministry whichever way you can. That is what we ought to do. We cannot fall back and start getting lazy because things are a little harder now to join the church. And some many people are leaving the churches now. They are never going to come back when the church starts up again because they were lukewarm when they were going. And now this was just the end of the line for them because now COVID-19 gave them a good excuse to stop going because the cultural and social pressure to go to church is no longer there in the same way. And for some people, that's the only reason they went in the first place, as unfortunate as that is. But those who will be left after this will be those who are truly after the heart of the Father and who are truly desiring to be on fire for his kingdom. Lastly, I would like to talk just a few minutes on leadership. Because this topic is very important and needed as well. Matthew 16, verse 18. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Leadership is often most neglected, especially when we're talking about something like a home church meeting or something of that sort. However, that should not fall by the wayside just because we're meeting differently. Leadership is and will always be important to our Father. He instituted leadership throughout the scriptures, as we will soon see. When Yeshua told Peter, Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. We need to understand that Peter's name means rock. Kepha means rock. And Yeshua is telling Peter that you are going to be the leader. You are going to be the rock, the leadership that this church is going to be built upon. Because Yeshua understood the value of that leadership. And Peter became the leader of the early church. Without strong leadership, a church will simply fall apart. But I want to stress that, you know, when we say leader or leadership, we always think about the teacher, the pastor, who is the leader who teaches over a congregation, etc. Or a rabbi or someone of that sort. A leader does not necessarily mean that they are a teacher. Okay, uh, you can be a leader in a church and you can be part of the leadership without being a teacher. In the same way, there's people who have a gift of teaching. There are people who are just have are gifted in being leaders and making decisions and keeping others accountable and making the hard decisions when things go wrong. That's what a leader is, and that's what we do still need and what is important. I do recognize 
that many of you who may be listening to this at this point may be like, oh, no, leadership. Part of you doesn't like that because maybe you've been hurt by leaderships before. Maybe you've been betrayed. Maybe people have just done you wrong who are leaders. I understand that and I am sorry if that has happened, right? But at the same time, the Bible still tells us we must have leadership because I have seen I have been in fellowships where they were leadership, especially smaller groups, and I've been in smaller groups where they weren't leadership. The smaller groups of our leadership, 100% of the time will fall apart sooner or later. Sooner or later, something, the enemy, Satan will creep in with something. And because there's no leader to address it and stop it, someone who has been appointed, then that will just tear apart the fellowship, whether that's gossip or, you know, a heresy or whatever. But if there is a leadership, now there is security. Now there's someone who can see a wolf come in and tell everyone, guys, this is a wolf. We need to watch out for this. Okay, so leadership is very, very important. One good biblical example of this leadership is found in the story of Moses, where Moses, who was the leader appointed by God over Israel's journey through the Exodus, was trying to bear all the weight on his own. But then, through a sequence of events, Moses said, we need to put more leaders in. And he put in leaders over thousands and hundreds and tens. And these leaders were helping him to govern or lead, if you will, in, among the people. So we read this in Deuteronomy 1 verse 12. How can I, Moses, bear by myself the weight and burden of you and your strife? Choose for your tribes, wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. Leadership is biblical. Accountability required. And it's like Moses said, choose for yourself leaders. You go, pick your leader. Choose someone who you trust. Choose someone who you believe can lead you and make tough decisions when they need to make tough decisions. And choose someone who's going to be bold enough to do it and who is close with the Father. Choose leaders. I want to make it clear that in this internet age where anyone and everyone can think of them as a leader or can be appointed as a leader, we need to still be really careful about this too. Leaders aren't just appointed by themselves or willy-nilly, as in like no one really thinks about who they are, where they've been. The scripture really makes a lot of, um, puts a lot of requirements down for what an overseer is supposed to look like. And also then what a deacon is supposed to look like. A deacon being more of a, a, um, uh, a leader within the church and an overseer typically being what you think of when we say a pastor or a rabbi or someone of that sort. 1 Timothy 3 gives us some of these requirements and without going too much into it, I would just like to read it with you as we end this teaching off. 1 Timothy 3 verse 2, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage 
his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace into the snare of the devil. Without leaders, we will be swayed by every wind of doctrine. We must have good leaders that we appoint according to the requirements that Paul has given us in the scriptures. We must test them and make sure that they are strong leaders and faithful to the word of God and purity. Brothers and sisters, I hope that this teaching has blessed you and made you think about a few things regarding this topic. There is certainly more to talk about in this realm, but I hope this helped you to start thinking about this. Because if we want to be the bride the Messiah is coming back for, we want to look like he looked, we need to do what he did. That includes how he did ministry. That includes discipleship and making that the foundation of what a church is supposed to look like. When we do that, we can have our more private or public, whatever format of service we want. But as long as discipleship and loving people is at the center of everything, we will be able to be good stewards of what God has entrusted to us. And we will see spirit and truth come to the world. I hope that this teaching has blessed you. Subscribe to this channel for more just like this one. Like this video, share it with your friends. And I'll see you guys in the next one. Shalom.